Man, it's gonna be a good morning. It's already been a good morning. And I just wanna, um, as we jump into a time where I think God wants to speak something really, really strong to us, I just want us to pray into that real quick. So will you pray with me? God, right now, I know that uh, this is kind of a crazy time of the year, and as we think about graduations and school coming to an end and all the things going on in our lives right now, there's just so much as we are coming off of just a really uh, long year and a half of uncertainty. I just pray that right now in this moment, would our minds be clear? Would we be able to uh, just kind of pause and, and hear from you? Would we experience you? God, I pray right now that uh, for, for those especially that maybe are watching online or even in the room today and just feeling overwhelmed or maybe even feel like they don't wanna be here and don't wanna listen and uh, that's such a real feeling that we can all fall into. I just pray that you would uh, bring a sense of calm right now, that there would be this uh, sense of being settled and uh, that we would just hear from you. So uh, we trust you with this time and we ask it all in the name of Jesus, amen. Now when I was 21 years old and in college, I took a trip to Las Vegas. Now that immediately already causes some tension in the room because you're like, oh gosh, this is a story with somebody turning 21, being in college and going to Las Vegas. So this is gonna be uh, interesting. And that's not typically a story you probably hear very often from someone who's communicating on a stage like this in a church. And uh, so I, I, just, I ask that you just kind of go with me for a second. Um, I didn't grow up uh, understanding a lot about gambling. I didn't know a lot about Las Vegas. And um, I had a friend who his parents decided to give him a trip to Las Vegas. They said, hey, we want you and some of your friends to be able to go spend a few days in Las Vegas. The one weird thing about that trip is that his parents went with us, 21 years old, but his parents tagged along. So, you know, that was, that was good. Um, but here's what's interesting. I had no money. I was broke. I worked part-time at Sam's Club. I was a cashier. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of money and didn't have a lot of money to spend. And they said, hey, we're going to cover everything. Just bring whatever you want to spend on entertainment and fun. And so I said, okay. So I scrounged up $300. I mean, I was, I was living large, $300. I was so excited. And so we get to Vegas, and I was fascinated by the lights and the buildings and all the extravagant architecture. It was just an unbelievable experience just to, to watch everything that was happening, to people watch. If, you, if you're a person who enjoys people watching like me, Las Vegas is a place where there's some epic people watching. As I started to kind of go through the, the experience, we're only there for a few days and got to day two, right at the, the evening of day two, and I honestly had only lost about $80, and um, that wasn't all on gambling, and because uh, I didn't know a lot about gambling, and I didn't feel good about losing the money that I'd worked so hard to earn. Like That was like a week's wages that I was spending, and so uh, I still had a lot of my money, and uh, one of my friends said, hey, let's go sit down at a poker table at the Bellagio. Now, the Bellagio is like, the place, and it was really the place then, because this was right after Ocean's Eleven had come, back, come out, and I was uh, in, fascinated with that movie, and then the, the fountains in front of the Bellagio, and so we walk in, and I'm like, man, we have no business being in this place. I mean, this is for high rollers, but believe it or not, they had some tables that we were able to sit down on, and I bought in, granted, I had played poker one time in my life, one time, and it was with Skittles, not money. Now, my buddies were both really, really skilled in poker. And so I'm like, man, this is, this is not a good idea. And they're like, dude, just sit down. You don't have to bet any money. If you don't want to, just sit down and have fun. And so I sat down, and um, I'm nervous and don't really know what to do. And I bought $200 worth of chips. And I'm sitting there, and I'm playing Texas Hold'em. Had no clue what I was doing. But on about the third hand that was dealt to me, 
With Texas Hold'em, you're only given two cards, and then the rest of the cards are placed down and are shared cards with the whole table. If you played Texas Hold'em, you know what I'm talking about. I know there's maybe one of you that maybe has ever done that before in the room. But I sit down, and the dealer dealt me two sevens. So I had a pair of sevens in my hand. I was excited. I was amped. I was like, oh, this, this is good. So I started betting money. I started moving my chips to the middle of the table, and everybody around the table had no idea what I was doing because they all knew that I'd never played poker before. I mean, and everyone is, is acting different. There's the guy with the sunglasses. There's the lady that's just kind of giving you the ugly stare the whole time, and they're looking at me confused. They're like, does this kid know what he's doing? What, what's going on? And so they're betting because I'm betting, and they're thinking, man, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's about to give us all his money, and I thought, I'm about to take all their money, and we're just walking through this whole process. This older gentleman was sitting next to me. He'd been there for three days, and he kept saying over and over, it's always more fun when the rabbit's got the gun. <laughs> And I'm like, what, what is this guy doing? Like, is, is he setting me up? Like, what, what, what is this whole thing going on? So anyways, we move through the hands. Several of the people um, throw their cards down. They fold. And I am all in this with a pair of sevens. And the cards are laid down. And I get no help from the cards that are laid down on the table. So the best hand I've got is a pair of sevens. And there's two guys at the table that have stayed in thinking that I was bluffing. And I ended up winning $360 on a pair of sevens. I was amped. I was so excited. That was like, I, I had made more money there than I'd made in like a week and a half at my job back in, in Texas. And so I'm like, this is, this is great. Now, I know what most of you would have done in that moment. You would have gathered your chips and gone and cashed out and walked away with more money than you showed up with. Well, I'm not as sophisticated and intelligent as you are. You know what I did? what a lot of us would probably do, I started looking around the table all of a sudden. I didn't pay attention at all to the number of chips that everybody else at the table had until I had won some chips. And all of a sudden, I had more than I arrived with. And I started looking and comparing and said, they've got a lot more than me. And I just made a lot of money. So I'm going to keep playing because I need more. I don't have enough. And so I'm going to have more. And here's where it got really twisted. One of my buddies is sitting at the table with me. He had more chips than me. And so I started competing against him. And I'm like, oh, he's, he's not going to go home with more money than me. And so we sat at that table for about six hours. I lost a little bit of money. But you know what was interesting? We had about a day left. I had $560 more than I had showed up in Vegas with. And I was determined. I even began to feel a little bit resentful towards my buddies because they had more money than I did. And I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this place with more money than they do. Long story short, I left Vegas Young, dumb, young, dumb, and broke. <laughs> Nothing. I had no money. I left and had to borrow money on the way home to eat lunch because I had spent all my money. I had lost it all trying to gain more. And the main reason I wanted more is because I simply just wanted to be better than my two friends that I went to Vegas with. Now, I don't play poker a lot. I, don't, I, haven't, I can't even remember the last time I played poker. It's not something that I do. But here's why I tell that story is because I think that in life, we have a tendency to do the same thing. We begin to look around and we begin to compare our lives with those around us and we begin to think, you know what? They have a little bit of what I think I need. I need a little bit more. And it's interesting to me that in a culture of abundance, we struggle with satisfaction and security with what we have. Even to a point where we begin to feel resentful towards other people that maybe have a little more than we do or have something that we desperately desire. 
The Bible talks about this. The Bible calls it envy. And so what I want us to consider in our time left today is how do we find the secret to contentment, the opposite of envy? How do we find the secret to contentment in our lives, not in a game of poker, because that's, that's honestly, that story for me is a little bit ridiculous and kind of embarrassing to talk about. But I had a mentor a long time ago tell me this. He said, when it comes to speaking or preaching in church, he said, always try to speak from your weaknesses and you'll never run out of content. And so today I speak into a weakness for myself because I struggle with this. I struggle with contentment. I feel like I wrestle and live in a world of discontentment sometimes, wishing that I had more, thinking that I don't have enough, lacking satisfaction. So let me ask you this question. What is the one thing you feel like you need in your life in order to be content? What is it that you feel like you need right now in order to find ultimate, full satisfaction in life? What is that? There's a song out right now that says, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a boat. And that's pretty close to happiness. You know, what's interesting is as you think about that question, what is it that would make you feel the most satisfied, the most content in life? And you think about your life, there's probably been times in your life that your answer would have been different. I mean, my answer would have been different in my 20s than it is today. Answer probably would have been a lot different when I was single than now when I'm married with my own children. I mean, the answer probably was different just a year ago than it is today, and it was probably different last week, and it's gonna be different in a year from now. But we're always looking for things to find fulfillment in our lives. And the Bible talks about this, and so what I want us to do is I want us to look and start in the book of James. We're gonna start in the book of James chapter four, but I want us to wrap our minds around this idea that contentment is not found in what we have, who is with you, or where you are. That's not where we find contentment. We're gonna unpack this, but contentment is found in the one who makes you who you are. And I think as we dive into James, we begin to unpack this and begin to uncover this a little bit in our lives. So let's look what it says. James chapter four, verse one. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? I mean, James is speaking, and I think that James probably has a little bit of an understanding of what it's like to live in discontentment. I mean, this is the half-brother of Jesus. So let's just consider that for a second. Can you imagine being the half-brother of Jesus? I mean, he's perfect. It's like, hey, hey, James, listen, um, I know you're cooking dinner tonight, but don't worry about running to the store to get what you need because Jesus cooked last night, and there's 12 baskets of leftovers that you could probably take to cook for tonight. You know what? In fact, J James, don't even worry about cooking because we'll just eat the leftovers from your brother who cooked last night. Or, hey, James, don't worry about bringing um, water to the, to the dinner table tonight because Jesus is gonna bring water, and most of the time when Jesus brings water, he can turn it into wine, and that's gonna be better than anything you're gonna bring. So can you just imagine being James? He's like, hey, Mom, we're going to the lake today. Did uh, Jesus get his bathing suit? No, he, he doesn't need it, James. He'll just walk on water while the rest of us flounder around and, and, and swim. I mean, he had to struggle with some comparison. So he, as he's speaking this, he's probably speaking from a place of realizing and recognizing what this looks like, experiencing it for himself. And he's talking about the desires that we have. He's saying the pleasures that, go back just a second. He says, the source of your pleasures that weigh war, wage war in your members. That word pleasures means desires the desires that we have. We desire something, and we desire it so much that it begins to wage war in our lives. It continues on. It says this. 
He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. That word lust means desire. He's saying you lust, you desire to have, and because you don't have it, you commit murder. Now, as far as I know, James didn't commit murder, and no one in here probably has committed murder. If you have, tell somebody after this is over. Um, let's, let's just keep that on the DL for right now. But what he's saying is he's saying when you find yourself in a place of discontentment where your desires are, are leading you to want something so desperately, we will commit murder, not specifically, not literally, but with our words, with our actions, with the snide comments that we make, the rude posts that we put on social media, just the look, the glance that begins to cut a little bit deeper into somebody else. Not only do we hurt other people, but we actually begin to hurt ourselves because we so desperately desire to be a certain way or to look a certain way. And so we'll actually physically begin to hurt ourselves to try to be someone that we think we have to be. What James is saying is he's saying, your desires drive your decisions. That's what he wants us to understand. That's what he's saying when he says this. He's saying, your desires drive your decisions. You know, that's true for us. Your desires, my desires drive a lot of what we decide to do. And I know some of you are very um, specific in gathering all the information, collecting all the data, knowing all the facts before you make a decision on something. But underneath all of that information and all of that data is a desire to be something, to do something, because in that desire, you find two things. Our two strongest desires are simply this. The first one is security. Birdie talked about that last week. He talked about the idea of being secure. Every single one of us have a deep desire, a longing in our lives to be secure, to be safe, to know that I am okay. And for some of us, we we find that in our bank account. For others, we find it in the relationship that we don't want to let go of, that we want to keep close. For others of us, we find it in a status, in a job, in a role that we live out. But we're desperate, desiring safety and security. The other desire is this, satisfaction. We desperately desire security and satisfaction. But here's what's interesting. If you never find security, then you really never get to a place where you desire satisfaction. If you go to a third world country sometimes, they're, they're desperate to find security. They've lived their entire lives not feeling safe. And so the idea of finding something that makes them happy is so far out there because they can't find themselves in a place where they feel safe. But I think for us in this culture of abundance that we live in, these are two desires that drive, that dictate our lives. Our desires are in the driver's seat of our life, and James is trying to call our attention to this because it's dangerous. Look what it says if you go back to verse two. The second part of that verse says, you are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This word envious, what does that mean? What does it mean to have envy? It simply means this. To envy means to desire something that you do not have. It's a simple definition. It's this idea that, uh, what I have is not enough. Not only is it not enough, but I think that I deserve more than this. I need more than what I have so that I'll begin to feel okay, so that I can find security, so that I can find satisfaction. I desire this. What's interesting about envy is it leads us to a place not just where we desire to have more, 
But when we find ourselves in a place of desiring something so much, it leads us to a place of resentment, resentment towards other people. We begin to lash out. It begins to break down and dissolve some of the things that are most valuable to us in our lives. That's what James is talking about in this passage. He wants us to see this. You know, it's interesting. There's a German word called that, that, that means exactly what envy accomplishes. The word means pain, joy. And the word is this, schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. There's your German lesson for the day. The word literally means pain, joy. I feel joy when you experience pain. That's what James is talking about. That's the picture of envy that he wants us to see. You know, the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. But envy does the opposite of that. Envy rejoices for those who mourn and mourns when those rejoice. We get it backwards and it's destructive. Tim Keller categorizes envy in three different categories. The first one is simply this, material, material envy. This happens when, uh, you know, you're just living life, you're going about your day, and you're hanging out on Facebook, and that guy posts a picture of his brand new jacked up pickup. And you love the car that you've driven the last few years, but all of a sudden, you don't like that car anymore, and you like that truck, and you want that truck. Actually, you want a truck that's a little bit nicer than that truck. That's material envy. Or maybe you're, um, you know, just living the normal day and you're checking out Instagram and your friend posts a picture of the homemade brownies that she made. And you're not interested in the brownies, but you look past the brownies. And as you see past the brownies, you're looking at everything in her kitchen. You're like, wow, those, those granite countertops, those cabinets, they've got the cutest knobs on them. And then in the background, there's that perfect word board with the most inspirational quote you could ever imagine. And you're like, I don't even like brownies. That's material envy. Or you've got that friend that goes on the exotic vacation. And every single day, they're posting these amazing pictures. And here you are stuck at home, desperate to just find a little bit of time and a little bit of money to take your kids to Bounce Bounce and Chuck E. Cheese. And they're out here enjoying this extravagant vacation. Material envy leaves us looking for security and satisfaction in what we have the things that we can accumulate. Not only is there material envy, but there's relational envy. Maybe it's the post you see on Instagram of your friends hanging out at a party that you didn't get invited to, and immediately that begins to stir something in you, some frustration. And then it gets even worse. It goes next level when you recognize that they posted a picture and you were actually in the picture, but they cropped you out and you can still see your arm. And you're like, no, they didn't. That fool just cropped me out of the picture. Or maybe everybody around you is getting married and you're not married yet. And you desperately desire to be in that relationship, to find that special someone, and you keep getting asked to be the, the best man or the, the, the bride, the, 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 one of the bridesmaids. And so you're just like, well, this is great, but you find yourself in a place where you're struggling to celebrate all of those occasions because you so desperately desire it for yourself. And listen, I really don't believe there's anything wrong with grieving not being in the relationship that you desire to be in, but it becomes envy when you find yourself in a place of resentment or self-pity. That's not what it is. Maybe for you, it's uh, you get that Christmas card every year from that one person, and it's the card with the letter with all the family's accomplishments from the last year, 
And then the picture in the card is like this perfect family and they're all holding blocks that spell out their name and they're in matching sweaters, even the dogs. I mean, it's just like this perfect picture in front of this rustic barn that you would think is just part of their normal everyday life, but it's really not. And so you're sitting there, you're like, oh my gosh, that's just disgusting. You're like, if I was to send out my family picture, we're going to be like punching each other. The kids' clothes aren't going to match. Their hair is not going to be done. My husband's going to be giving me that look. And that's, no, that's just, that's just not, that's just not for me. You see, relational envy always leaves us looking for security and satisfaction in who we have with us, who we have around us. The third one is simply this, circumstantial, circumstantial envy. This is when we begin to look at our life and we compare it with those around us. We begin to think, man, I, I wish that I had the life that they have. I wish that I, I, I had some of the prestige that he has in his job, or I wish that I had some of the freedom that she has in her job or in her role. And we begin to think and wish that maybe our situation could be a little bit different. And if my situation was different, then maybe my life would be in a place where I find some satisfaction. I mean, can I just be honest and vulnerable for a minute? Um, thank you for agreeing to that. Uh, sometimes, you know, working here at Community Faith, working at a church requires that I work on the weekends. I mean, that's just part of my job, and, and I love my job. But sometimes I have to stay off of social media because I'm looking at everybody else's social media posts. It's like, oh, they're at the lake again. Oh, man, they're, they're at the coast. They're fishing all weekend. Oh, man, they went to the Texans game. And then here's poor pitiful me just, you know, hanging out back at the church, worshiping God while they worship the devil in their uh, fun weekend away. But don't worry about me. You know, I'll be here all by myself trying to save the world all alone. That's a little bit ridiculous. But even in that, do you see the irrational thoughts that begin to stir in our minds as we begin to find ourselves in a place of envy? Circumstantial envy will always leave us looking for security and satisfaction in where we are in life. And all three of these are incredibly dangerous. They leave us in a place of feeling empty. And what James is telling us, he's saying, hey, this is dangerous. This is something you need to be paying attention to. And if we didn't already, like, I mean, just understanding those three is one thing, but let's understand those three. You've got the material, you've got the relational, you've got the circumstantial. And then on top of that, let's just throw in social media completely. I mean, because for centuries, there wasn't social media. But now we have this device with these platforms on it that let us peek into the lives of everybody else, but they control what you get to see. And so what happens is you begin to see the billboards of their life while you understand the diary of your own life, and it doesn't match up. You begin to see the best of the best for them while you understand and know the worst of the worst for you. And it leaves you in a place of feeling unsatisfied. Like maybe you're not living the life that you potentially could be living. I mean, maybe it looks like this. I mean, maybe, maybe recently you had uh, a wedding anniversary and you celebrated being married to your spouse for so many years and uh, he came home and he brought flowers and he cooked dinner and there was the Marvin Gaye playlist for later and it was just, it was a great night. I mean, it's like hashtag winning. Three days later, you're scrolling social media, scrolling Facebook, one of your friends posts an anniversary post. She's so excited because for her anniversary, her husband surprised her and bought her a Labradoodle puppy and a Louis Vuitton backpack for the backpacking trip that he planned in the Swiss Alps with the cast of Hamilton. I mean, he, and you're just like, 
you're, you're just like, wow, I wish my husband could do that, or I wish my anniversary was like that. But here's what you don't see. You see the highlight, but you don't see that maybe potentially they're on the brink of divorce. But we begin to compare. We begin to look out. We begin to experience some discontent. We become envious and resentful. It's a dangerous place to be. I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and there was a lady on there, and she was a special media guru. I mean, she works with companies to help them um, leverage platforms for success on social media. And she was talking about some of the dangers of social media. She talked about this conversation between these two moms, and they confessed to each other that they hated each other. I mean, there was the working mom who said, I hated you because every time I got on social media, I would see this perfect Pinterest, uh, do crafts with your kids all day, structured kids' time, all put together. The home is always great, and here I am wishing that I had that, and I didn't, and I felt like a failure, and so I hated you for that. And then the stay-at-home mom said, I resented you because you just looked like you had it all together. You were doing something for yourself. Things were happening in your life. You were successful. You were accomplishing things. People were looking at you like you were successful leader, and here I am at home, and I haven't had my hair in anything but a ponytail and haven't engaged in adult conversations since 2015. And do you see what's happening in that? They were feeling resent towards each other because of what they had seen on social media, a filtered presentation of someone else's life that they began to judge their own life on, and it led them to a place of discontentment and envy. It's dangerous, and I think that's what Paul wants us, or James wants us to see. I was reading this study this week. In 2017, there was a study done with 500,000 8th through 12th graders. As they collected all the data, these 500,000 teenagers were actively engaged in social media on their own device, their own physical phone or iPad or computer, and it said that with those 500,000 specifically, that the high levels of depression increased between the years 2010 and 2015. The suicide rate for teenage girls increased by 65% in that same time span. There's a strong correlation here in the rise of smartphones and the increase in depression. Smartphones came onto the scene in 2007. In 2015, from this focus group, 92% of the teenagers in this group owned their own smartphone. Additionally, on college campuses in the same year, they had seen a 33% increase in depression visits in counseling centers on their campuses. Social media feeds on this. Social media is kerosene to the fire of envy in our lives. And so we've not, I'm not saying shut down all your social media accounts and take the phone away from your kids, but I'm saying we need to pay attention to this because it's destroying us. It's wrecking us. Envy is like a poison. It slowly begins to creep in. It's close. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. It says, a tranquil heart gives life. A tranquil heart means a peaceful heart, a content heart, a relaxed heart. It says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh but envy makes the bones rot. What the author of Proverbs is saying, that envy will kill you. It is killing you. This is the scheme of the enemy. This is the scheme of Satan himself all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This is what Adam and Eve wrestled with. Here they are in the garden, and God has said to them, 
You have everything in the garden at your disposal. It's all for you, except for that one tree. And so what does the enemy do? He begins to scheme. He begins to deceive. And Adam and Eve begin to believe that, you know what? Maybe, maybe that's what we need. Maybe God's holding out on us. You know what? I think we deserve that tree. That's probably the best tree. And so they go after it. The results? Death. So I think there's something for us to pay attention in this. There's something for us to see. And I think that as we see this in ourselves, we maybe can begin to look and decide, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? I read a story this week about a guy named Bob Roberts in Christianity Today. It's a magazine that's published monthly. Bob Roberts is a pastor, and Bob Roberts, and this, this, this maybe hit home for me a little more. I don't, I don't know, but I felt like the story was significant. And uh, Bob Roberts had moved to this town, and he had begun to pastor this church. And as he was pastoring this church for a couple of years, he wasn't experiencing a lot of growth. The numbers weren't increasing. Things were going okay, and people were excited about some of the things happening, but he, he wasn't experiencing the growth that he thought he needed to be experiencing as the leader of this congregation. And at the same time, as he's in this article, it says that um, over the course of those two years, one guy at a church down the road, it was discovered that he had had five affairs while pastoring a church down the street, a church that was growing, a church that was looked at as successful. And then at another church in another town not far away, a mega church, they found out that this pastor had been embezzling money from the church. And here Bob is in this moment thinking, what, what in the world, God, what is going on? And he talks about going out on a walk. And he said he began to pray to God, and he said to God, God, I've been faithful in my marriage. I've kept my hands out of the offering plates. I've lived with integrity. Why aren't you blessing me? And he said after he said that, as he's walking down this road, this question came to mind. And the question was simply this, is Jesus not enough. And he said it almost paralyzed him. And he said it was in that moment that he honestly believed that he became a follower of Jesus and understood what it really meant to be a follower of Jesus. Because for all the years prior to that, he had been leading other people to know this man named Jesus, and he had put his satisfaction and his security in how many people were showing up to his church and how many people were beginning to follow and trust Jesus, that he was missing Jesus. And I think that question that he asked himself that day that God put on his mind, on his heart, is the same question that I think God wants us to wrestle with today. Is Jesus not enough? I think we see this in the life of Paul. We see this in the book of Philippians. Paul was a, was a leader who had um, been, been incredibly successful, had all kinds of power and prestige and popularity and success. He knew everything there was to know about the religious tradition that he found himself in, and he found himself in a place where he was murdering Jesus followers who were finding their contentment in Jesus. And because they maybe had something that he didn't even realize he wanted, he was taking their life, doing exactly what James described in James chapter four. But then there was that day where Paul is on this road and Jesus knocks him off his donkey and he falls onto the road and he has this encounter with Jesus. And maybe Jesus isn't knocking anybody off a donkey today. I don't think anybody in this room today came to church or showed up wherever you're watching online today riding a donkey but maybe it's the moment that God wants to have with you today 
to get your attention, to say what you're chasing after, what you're running to, the people that you're trying to surround yourself with, the life that you're trying to create for yourself, it's destroying you. Maybe the consideration is just, is Jesus enough? And here's what's interesting. Paul gave his life to Christ. He surrendered everything that he had, and he began to follow Jesus. And in Philippians 4, he's writing from a prison cell, literally chained to a Roman soldier 24-7, the following words. Look what he says. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned. He says, for I have learned. There's a process There's an understanding that he has begun to see a little bit more clearly. He's saying, I have learned this. I have set my mind on this. He says, I have learned to be content. What does that mean? He says to be settled. That word means to be settled, to find satisfaction in nothing external. There's nothing in my life, around my life, that can provide the security and satisfaction that I so desperately long for. This is what Paul is saying. He said, in whatever circumstances I am. And then he continues on in verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. I mean, he had been at the top of the world and he had been in the pit of the world in any and every circumstance. Again, he says, I have learned. But what has he learned? He says, the secret. He has learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He's saying, I've, I've, I've figured it out. My eyes have been opened that day where Jesus knocked him off his donkey and got his attention and said, hey, Paul, you're looking in all the wrong places for satisfaction and security that you so desperately need. He's learned the secret. What is that secret? It's a verse that even if you've not been in church for very long, may be familiar to you. He says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is Paul saying? Now, this is a verse that we like to throw on bumper stickers. We like to throw on our Instagram profiles that athletes like to write on their eye black. It's so much more than just a Tim Tebow verse. Because it's not, I can do anything I put my mind to when I just say Jesus is on my side. That's not what this verse is saying. That's not what Paul wants us to see. Paul is saying, I can do all things through him. No matter what happens in my life, no matter what I have and what I don't have, no matter who I have next to me and who I don't have next to me, no matter what my life looks like and what it used to look like or what it's going to look like, through him, what he's saying is Jesus is enough. And in all things, because Jesus is enough and because Jesus gives me strength, I will be okay. I will be okay. I'll be okay because of the one who makes me who I am. That's what Paul wants us to see. He's saying it's not my house, it's not my family, it's not the things that I have, it's not the accomplishments that I've seen in my life, it's not the F-150, it's not the donkey card, it's not the Twitter followers, the Instagram followers, the likes, the dislikes, it's none of that, it's Jesus. Jesus is my security, Jesus is my satisfaction. And you see this in Paul's life as he writes the books of the New Testament. He's, he's resilient. He's unshakable. He's unstoppable. Why? Because he's found contentment. He's found contentment. You know, it's interesting. One of the four noble truths of Buddhism is that desire brings human suffering. Desire brings human suffering. What does that mean? In other words, what that means is is if, if uh, if, if you didn't so desperately desire to be loved, then you wouldn't mind being lonely. Or Maybe you could say it like this. You wouldn't mind being poor if you didn't so strongly desire to be rich. So what Buddhism says, it says you've got to cut out the desire. 
You've got to cut out the desire to want those things. And what Paul would be telling us this morning is to say, no, 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 no. It's not about cutting out the desire. It's all about relocating the desire, not to a thing, not to a place, not to a certain life, but to a person. And that person is Jesus. That's what Paul's message is to us today. I want to illustrate it for you this way, and I, I feel like I need to probably disarm a few people in the room before I do this, um, because you're like, oh my gosh, Wes has a poker table in the church. But just listen, push, push back any preconceived ideas. I'm not trying to be you know, gimmicky here, but I think there's something there here that's, that Paul wants to illustrate for us that I think we can see when we think about what it looks like in a game of poker. Because if you've played poker before, you sit down at the table. Last week, Bertie preached a message, an incredible message, where he said, Jesus has allowed you to take a seat at the table no matter who you are. And you find security in that. And today, as you take a seat at that table, there's more to do at the table. You know, in the game of poker, you're dealt some cards. And with those cards, you are dealt a hand. And sometimes in certain games of poker, you can look at your cards and you're like, ah, oh, this is a decent hand, but I think it could be better. And so you can take maybe three cards, two cards. You can take the whole hand and say, you know what? I'd like to replace those. I'm going to discard those. Give me three more because I, I, I'm hoping that my hand will be better. And so you, that's how you play the game of poker. Then you get the hand that you think you need and the, the hand that you want. And so you begin to think, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet a little bit of money and hope that my hand is better than anybody else's hand around the table. I've got the winning hand. And so I'm going to risk this in hopes of winning, in hopes of finding some satisfaction. You know, it's interesting, when you think about your life, your life is somewhat like a deck of cards. It's a hand you've been dealt. But the difficult thing about life is that in life, there's no replacing the cards. You can't look at your life and say, ah, oh, you know what? I like those two. That's, those are awesome, but these, ugh, these three, can I get three more cards? Like, that's not how it works. And I think what Paul wants us to see and what I want us to understand today is for all of us, we've been dealt a hand, and it's a hand that you can't necessarily change. But instead of trying to leverage my hand to win, to find satisfaction and security, instead of taking the things that I've accumulated, my wealth, my, my abilities, the, the things that, that I have in my life, instead of taking all this and trying to find my security in these things or in the people around me, I can find my security and my satisfaction in something that never changes. And so what that means is, is that we can take our hand and when you go all in in a game of poker, you throw your cards down, you say, I'm all in. And everybody can see your cards. And it makes you a little bit uncomfortable because when we're talking about cards, it's like, oh, they're gonna see my cards and I might look like a fool. But when you think about life and people can see your cards, because normally you're holding them right here. But when they can see my cards, they begin to see my physical body, who I am, what I look like. You know, there's some things I, I do kind of like about myself, and there's some things I don't like about myself. I don't like that about once a week, somebody thinks I'm Tony Hawk or Johnny Lawrence. A few months ago, somebody from the back here yelled, Cobra Kai, when I walked out on stage. I was like, okay. But I know for some of us, it's more serious than that. There's some things you like about yourself, but there's some things you hate about yourself. And you're not trying to hurt anybody else because of that, but you hurt yourself. There's things about you that you are desperate to change, so much so that you'll inflict pain on your own body to try to fix it. 
Maybe it's not your physical body. Maybe it's your family. There's some good things about your family. Maybe some unhealthy things about your family. You know, I have a great family. I've got a great wife, great kids. I've experienced some dysfunction in my family as a kid growing up, broken home, divorced home. I heard some of that story a couple weeks ago. But it's, it's who I am. It's part of my hand. And I wanna lay that down. Or maybe it's life experiences. Some of the things that maybe you're proud of in your life. Some of the things you've accomplished. We had graduates who accomplished something big in this season. Maybe it's the first time that you made dad proud. Or maybe it's, maybe it's something that you did that you deeply regret. You carry some of the scars because of some of the choices that maybe you made or somebody made that impacted your life. And there's some life experience in that. And it's, it's good. It's, it's ugly. It's maybe painful. But that's the experiences that you've had. Or maybe it's your personality. You know, I like some things about my personality. God has made my personality a specific way, but there's things I don't like about my personality. I don't like that I wrestle with some insecurity, that I wrestle with some envy sometimes. I don't like that I'm skeptical of things. I'm naturally just skeptical. Like, it's just kind of gross. I don't like that about myself, but it's who I am. And I can lay that down. And then maybe there's some secrets. It's those things that you don't talk to anybody about. There maybe it's a habit or it's a tendency or an addiction. There's some things in your life, maybe from the past, you're like, man, nobody needs to know about that because if they knew about that, then man, I would, not, I would be so insecure. I would never find satisfaction in life. But here's what, here's what I want you to see today is what Jesus did when he went to the cross and he laid his life down so that we could find satisfaction and security in God. He did that so that we could take our hand, our life, everything we are, and just say, I'm laying it down. That's what Paul did. He said, God, I'm all in. Jesus, I'm all in. I trust you with, with this. Not only do I trust you with my life, but I trust you with everything I have. I am all in. My talents, my abilities, my finances, my home, my, my family, everything that I am, I am all in and I trust you with it. What does God do? He doesn't say, <laughs> good, good, good. No, what he says, he says, you see all that? I love that. God says, I, I want that. He says, I want you. I desperately desire this. I wanna protect you from you running after all of this for your satisfaction and secu your security. God says, I did everything necessary so that you could lay it all down and stop looking to these things for your security. Would you just trust me? Would you just lay your life down and surrender everything? And then when, he, when we do that, it's not like God takes it all away and says, ah, oh, good, good. I'll, I'll, I'll hang on to this until you get your life together. And he says, hey, why don't you take that back? And now that you've found your satisfaction and your security in me, live with this. Don't look at this for your security and your satisfaction because you've already found that in me. I made you who you are in Christ. What would that look like for us today? I wanna leave you with this last question. And it's simply this, what, who, or where do you look to for security and satisfaction? What is it that you're looking to? When things get difficult, when there's trouble, where do you run? Who are you listening to? What are the voices that you allow to speak into your life? For some of us, we maybe need to evaluate that and cut some of those voices out. What is it that you're exhausting yourself so that you'll feel a little bit better about who you are? What would it look like for us this week to wrap our minds around this and come to a place where maybe we realize 
Jesus, you're not at the center. Jesus, I don't know that you have been enough because I don't think I ever realized you were enough. But as we focus on this question, maybe we land in a place where we could say, Jesus, you are enough and I trust you and I lay my life down and I surrender everything. Show me how to live. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this time. God, right now, I just pray that you would um, continue to open our eyes to who you are. Break us free from the envy and the discontent and the comparison that traps us, that's destroying us, that's wrecking us. Pray that you would give us freedom in that. God, I pray for a lot of courage and boldness right now, just in this moment. Father, would you, would you speak really clearly to us for just a second? Listen, I just want you to continue to kind of have a, a mindset of prayer, but I just wanna ask by, is there, maybe today, you just realize that everything with Jesus isn't okay with you. Maybe Jesus isn't at the center of your life and maybe he never has been, but today you realize I, I need that. I need Jesus at the center. I'm gonna ask you to do something. If that's you, and you would say, I need Jesus at the center. I've not allowed him to be at the center of my life. I've not trusted him with everything. If that's you, I'm gonna ask you to do something. Would you, would you just raise your hand? I wanna pray for you. That's all I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna pray for you. You don't have to do anything else. But if that's you, would you just raise your hand and say, I want Jesus at the center today. I see you, man. I'm down here in the front, sir. I see you guys up in the risers. Down here in the middle, thank you. See you way up there. See you. Here in the front. Thank you. See you guys in the middle right here. Thank you so much. See you back here, sir. See you. Can I pray for you? God, I pray right now for my friends. God, I pray that uh, you would give them the courage and the boldness to take that step towards you, to trust you with everything, to allow you to be the boss of their life. Continue to draw them close to you. Give them the ability to see you more clearly and to trust you more fully. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The last minute that we have together today, I want us to take communion together a little bit differently because I think Jesus, before he went to the cross, he said, do this and remember me. Why? Because I think he knew we were gonna have a hard time staying aware of who he is and what he did on our behalf. We're really good at saying stuff aware and him aware and she aware and everybody else aware and all the things that we have in our life aware, but we struggle to remember Jesus. And so what Jesus did is he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. In your place to do what you couldn't do for yourself, take it. And when you eat it, remember me. And so we take that to remember Jesus. And likewise, Jesus said, this is the cup, this is my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So when you drink it, remember me and remember the freedom, remember the life, the second chance that it gives you. So as we take the cup together today, as we're about to leave this place to remember Jesus and who he is, to stay aware of him. Let's take the cup together.
Listen, today, if maybe you raised your hand and you say, I, I, I wanna follow Jesus, would you do something for me today because you weren't meant to do that alone? Would you text best you to 97000 as you're leaving today? Just text that and our team is gonna follow up with you. They're gonna connect with you because they wanna walk through this journey with Jesus together with you. So don't delay taking that step and let us walk with you. I pray for us. God, I pray that you would bless us, that you would keep us so incredibly close to you, protect us. God, I pray that your face would shine on us, that you would be gracious to us. God, I pray that your favor would be all over our lives as we leave this place, that you would give us peace this week. In Jesus' name, amen.